The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Good morning. If you are with the Threes and Fours class, you are dismissed. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you are staying in with us, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians. If you need a copy of God's Word, um, we'd be glad to, to bring you one. Christian Norton's in the back with extra copies, so just slip up your hand and he'll, he'll be glad to walk down the aisle and give you one. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 this morning. And I will begin our time reading verse 18 all the way through 25, and we'll pause and pray one more time for understanding. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. If you're there, say word. Word. That's what I always do with the teenagers. They always lie, though. They just yell word. First Corinthians. 118. Here we go. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's, let's pray. Father, I'm a, I'm a bit overwhelmed by the, important, the importance of this paragraph and of this chapter and, and of chapter 2. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the importance that... the these texts have played on my own life and in my own understanding of what it is that you've called me to do as a person, as a pastor, what it is you've called us as a church to do when we gather. Uh, this, these texts, along with many others, they, they sh have shaped many of us without us even knowing it. They've shaped what we've done in this room every Sunday for the last seven and a half years. And so, God, I just pray um, that you would help us to see clearly what it is that Paul is saying 
and that through the reading and understanding of this text, you would protect us from the failures of the Corinthians. Recenter us this morning, Father, on what is most important in our lives. And so, Father, we pray for the miracle of reading these inspired words and understanding them and applying them and sharing them with the world. Would you do a million miracles through this text in our hearts? Would you be worshipped and would you be pleased this morning with what happens over the next 45 minutes, Lord? We pray by your grace, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. My aim this morning is to do what this text has told me to do. My aim in this moment is to do what this text models for me to do. My aim is to do what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. According to this text, my aim primarily this morning is to please God with what I am doing. There is something about what is happening that fits within the plan and power of God to save those who believe. What I am aiming to do this morning is something that the Corinthians were losing sight of. And if we're honest with ourselves and with our world, it's something that many churches in our day has lost sight of. My, my aim right now is to preach. That's the word Paul uses three times in this text, one time in verse 17. That word preach, it's a, it's a unique word. It's not exactly the same thing as to teach. It's not exactly the same thing as to instruct or tell or explain. That word preach used in this text is a word that would have commonly been used for the town crier, the town herald, the one who would cry out with good news that everyone needed to hear. He's the messenger. He's the messenger who ran ahead of the coming king with a message that carried the authority of the king who was coming. The town herald would arrive in a town, and with all the passion and energy within him, he would declare or announce and proclaim good news of the coming king. He would proclaim with all of his being, all of the truth, without altering any iota of it, he would proclaim what the king had sent him to proclaim. Not in a bored, uninterested kind of way, but with all of the passion that was appropriate for the king who was coming. So my aim is to cry out, to announce, to proclaim, to herald a message that is not my message. Rather, it is a message that has been handed down to me. It's a message that Paul summarizes in this paragraph. In verse 21, he summarizes it with the phrase, the word of the cross. Verse 2, or verse 22 rather, he says that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In verse 23, he summarizes it this way, we preach Christ crucified. That's the, that's the message summarized. And there was a fundamental problem happening within the Corinthian church. They had lost their appetite 
and their appreciation for the faithful preaching of the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. What happened in the Corinthian church is that they had began to elevate values of human wisdom, values of human oration and rhetoric and debate and entertainment. They loved eloquent speeches with very impressive speakers more than they loved the content of the message about a cross with a Savior. They prioritized Corinthian values like strength and pride and power and riches and social status and eloquence. Their value, as their value for Corinthian culture increased, their unity around the primary message of Christianity decreased. Sin entered the church. Division entered the church. Rather than reaching the Corinthian culture with the gospel, they simply became what they were trying to reach. They began to argue about who was greatest and who was the greatest leader. They began to pick sides. And before too long, they valued the world so much that they emptied the message of the cross that their whole salvation had begun with. And now that's where we left off last week, a divided church prioritizing the wrong things and basically falling apart from within. And in verse 17, because they're arguing about, oh, well, I was baptized by this guy and I was baptized by this guy, Paul basically says, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want you to associate primarily with me. Verse 17 said this, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, that is the good news, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, Paul says, I have no interest in impressing you. I have no interest in drawing a crowd with my pristine presentation. I am not interested in how many followers on whatever the first century version of Instagram was. I am, I am not proud of, of baptizing you or wanting you to be the one baptized me. I have no interest, in, no interest in entertaining you, no interest in flattering you. I have no interest in doing anything that would distract you from the primary message that Christianity is all about the message that saves your soul and that you are to proclaim to the world that desperately needs saving. This letter is a recentering of the Corinthian church on this word that Paul summarizes in verse 18. In fact, uh, verse 18 functions as kind of a kind of a thesis statement, if you will, that launches us into a threefold argument that that for Paul will sort of unfold for the next several weeks as we study chapter 2 and 3. Verse 18, uh, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Truth number one this morning is this. The word of the cross is folly to the perishing. Now, now what, what is... Paul's first line of argument to this Corinthian church who have lost sight to the centrality of this one message. The first line of argument is an explanation as to why these Corinthians and their church would have drifted away from the primary message of Christianity. That word that he uses to describe this primary message of Christianity, he uses the Greek word moria, which is where we get our word moron. It's that word folly there. It's where we get our word moronic. Paul essentially says, of course 
you've abandoned the centrality of the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ and have traded it for something more acceptable, something more entertaining, something that you like to hear. The message of the cross is a crazy message to the Corinthian culture. The message of the cross is absurdity to the natural ear of the Corinthian person. And I think that we, as a body of believers, we need to pause and just recognize how true this statement is. We need to pause and just give the word cross its appropriate weightiness in the first century setting. I think it's safe to say that all of us have become too familiar with the word cross with the symbol of the cross, with the concept of the cross. It is a symbol. When we see the cross, we see a symbol that represents a religion. We wear it on our necks. We put it on our bumper stickers. We, put it, we, we have it on our mugs. We have it uh, on our wall art from Hobby Lobby, right? We, we hang this up everywhere as the symbol of the particular re- religion that we affiliate with, but we are far removed from the world where when walking just on the outskirts of town, we would see bloodied, limp bodies hanging from crosses. The word cross does not mean for us what it would have meant for the first century listener. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, says this, he says, the Christian's choice of a cross as the symbol of their faith is more surprising when we remember the horror with which crucifixion was regarded in the ancient world. We can understand why Paul's message of the cross was to many of his listeners foolishness, even madness. How could any sane person worship as a god A dead man who'd been justly condemned as a criminal, subjected to the most humiliating form of execution, this combination of death, crime, and shame put him beyond the pale of respect, let alone worship. And he goes on to say, this is well illustrated by Graffito from the second century. It is the first surviving picture of the crucifixion, and it's a caricature, a crude drawing depicts a stretched on a cross, a man with the head of a donkey. It was a comic making fun of the Christian religion that made the cross the place where they say God worked most clearly to save them eternally. We need to realize this morning that the message that spread through the world in the first century was in fact a message that should not have spread. I mean, this kind of movement movement with this kind of message should have petered out pretty quick. I mean, it should have died Everything about the message of the cross was counter-cultural. It was a message that was hard to stomach for Greeks. It was a message that was hard to stomach for Jews. Christianity claimed that there was one God in a Roman world that worshipped a pantheon of gods. Christianity claimed that this one God had eternally been God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that God the Son took on humanity and walked around with humans, teaching true things of God, and then humbled himself to the most humiliating and excruciating death reserved only for criminals. That's moronic, the first century person might have said in the marketplace to the person preaching the good news of Jesus. All of this in a cultural moment where things like humility were not even a virtue. 
Roman culture didn't see humility as a virtue. Pride and honor and strength and power were the superior virtues. Christians preached about a God who willingly humbled himself to humiliation in love for his subjects. For the Jews, it's true they were waiting on a Messiah, a Savior, but they expected somebody powerful and military-like to do what they wanted him to do. But Jesus shows up and, and does what the Old Testament says can only be explained by you being cursed by God. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. This is the type of thing the Jew had in their mind when they heard about a Jesus on a cross. Deuteronomy 21, 22 says this, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for the hanged man is cursed by God. The Jews wanted someone to save them from their political adversaries. And this man showed up saying, I've got salvation, and he hung on a tree. Verse 22 of chapter 1 says, Jews demanded signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Not only did Christ of Christianity embrace a cross, the message of Christianity was that every human being actually deserves the cross. The message or the word of the cross is that the humiliation and agony of the cross of Jesus is actually the kind of death penalty that all sinners against a holy God deserve. Everyone fits that category of sinner deserving a cross. The message of the cross in a world that prioritized strength and independence and power, the message was you are weak, helpless, and hopeless on your way to an eternal dying of sorts under the wrath of God. All of you will die. Everyone will be held accountable to this God you've rejected. Everyone is going to some kind of eternity where you'll face the punishment of your sins unless you confess your own weakness and trust that Savior who died in your place. So not only is the Christian God the kind of God who who takes on humiliation in love for his people, In order to become a Christian, you have to admit your own humiliation. You have to come to a point where you say, I can't save myself, and I have sinned against this God, and I deserve what Jesus took. You have to admit yourself, you can't save yourself from an eternal perishing of sorts. Your only hope is to trust the Christ who hung on the cross. And rose again. And here's the, here's, the, here's the deal. If you do, if you do, if you trust in this message that he really is God, he really did die for you, he really did raise again on the third day, what you'll receive is eternal life. But right now, things won't get easier. <laughs> I mean, you realize that's, that's the message they're bringing in. I mean, people got real problems. They got bills to pay. They're sick. They're hurting. They got all these types of things. And, and bring Christianity in. And hey, if you believe this, you'll be exiled from popular opinion. You'll be exiled from this culture. You will not get honor in this life. You will not get riches. You will not get safety. Your life will not get easier. In fact, if you really believe this message and follow this Jesus and start to tell other people about him, you might lose your life here on earth. 
I mean, one of the reasons that Paul was so unimpressive as a Christian preacher, one of the reasons, as we'll see later in 1 Corinthians, that he came in trembling was because already Paul was preaching with scars on his back from the lashings he had received for this faith that he had. He preached Christ crucified as a man, recognizing it might get him crucified. You see, the message of the cross is is a message of eternal salvation from eternal perishing. What's the message if you believed it in the first century? It would not mean satisfaction of all the things your flesh desired in the moment. In fact, it would have gotten you less honor, less comfort in the world, not more. And so really, from a world's perspective, isn't this just foolishness? I mean, it doesn't satisfy the intellectual, cultural cravings of the Greeks. It doesn't satisfy the cultural expectations of the Jews. And if we have to, if we really want to get real this morning and admit some things, it will not satisfy the consumeristic, materialistic, individualistic, self-centered, independent, entertainment-crazed, sex-obsessed culture of America. This message does not say all of the things that your flesh wants right now will be yours in this moment when you put faith in Jesus. It's why you might go to many churches across the country this morning and what you will hear is not a message primarily about the message that saves people. As preacher H.B. Charles puts it, the American church trying to reach the world according to man's wisdom has leaned over into the world so much that it fell in. The word of the cross is a message of a crucified Savior. And it's foolish, according to verse 18, to those who are perishing. Now, verse 18 has a very important word that happens in the middle of the sentence. And that word is but. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. This is ridiculous to those who will die forever. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Truth number two, the word of the cross is power of God to save. And as far as Paul is concerned, there's two categories of people in the world. There are those who are presently perishing and those who are presently being saved. Now, all of us in the room are presently dying. I read a very encouraging quote this week. I had gone and exercised with a lot of the young people. We have a little group called Jacked for Jesus on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, We go get our exercise on at 6.15 a.m., so I'd done that. I was feeling every ounce of that, and I sat down to read my devotional book that I'm presently sort of reading through called Faithfully Present, talking about how to be faithfully present with God, and had a chapter on how to be faithfully present in our bodies, and he so helpfully reminded me of this at 7 a.m. Adam Ramsey says this, every human body that is living is also somewhere on the well-trodden path of dying. Numerous studies have shown that the growth we experience through our childhood and teen years hits peak somewhere around the age of 25. From there, our bodies begin to physiologically decline. 
We are presently dying. That is an observable fact. At some point, whether it's 25 or not, things decline physiologically. Something begins to happen. Death approaches us, though nobody wants to admit it. All of us are dying, but some of us, some of us are presently being saved from our sins and sin's consequences. Notice Paul uses the word saved, not in the past tense here, but in this present ongoing tense. He recognizes that when you put faith in Jesus, all is not all of a sudden fixed. All your sin is forgiven. All the promises are true forevermore. But now what you're looking for is a full salvation on the day you see Jesus face to face. Where you have a new body and a new life in a new world given to you. You have promised to you eternal life. And you're looking forward to that day where you see God face to face. But then the question is, why? Why are you looking forward to that day with joy in your hearts? Why are you not fearful of that day of judgment? Why aren't you afraid You'll go into an eternal state of perishing because you sinned against that God. Why? Because the word of the cross has proved powerful to save you from all of that. You see, to us, the word of the cross is the very power that wipes away all our guilt and all our shame and all our sin and all our fear. The cross tells us our sin is paid for. The cross tells us that God loves us beyond comprehension. The cross and resurrection tells us death is not the end. For those who believe, and that message has a kind of power, not just to save us eternally, but to change us presently. And so what happens is the church becomes this group of people who their lives are centered around this message that is powerfully having an impact in their lives. And the outside world says, you guys are weird, maybe even fools. But this power in us, which comes from a message we believe, keeps changing us from the inside out. So much so that people in the first century were willing to throw away everything this life offered them because of the promise they have from the Savior who died and rose from them. You can read the words of Ignatius as he is on his way to potential martyrdom. He writes, let fire in the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and the tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me, be it so, if only I gain Christ Jesus. There's a power to the message which sustains his people to the end that causes people to marvel that these people would be so changed by such a foolish message. And the primary difference is a matter of believing. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, it's, it's those who believe who have been saved. Verse 22 through 24 really articulates the difference here. Uh, he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, but That's what they want, but we're going to give them what they need, right? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, verse 24. But, that's what they want, this is what we're going to give them, and here are the ones that are really going to listen. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it doesn't matter what the cultural background is, it doesn't matter what the expectations are, those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you're a Christian this morning, And the message of the cross is no longer a stumbling block to you. It is no longer craziness. The reason it is no longer craziness 
Paul would say, because God interrupted your hellbound race, broke your hardened heart, opened your blind eyes, and called you to a faith in him that you are incapable of apart from his miraculous work. Like God did something in you that you might see the truth that you were blinded to, so much so that the people in the first century would go to the lions singing hymns of praise. Salvation through faith in this message is a glorious work of God, the power of God to understand the centrality of the message of the cross for all of human history. And what happens, because salvation is this, because when I was an eight-year-old, God called me from a living a life of blindness to see him. Guess what I don't do on the day of judgment? I don't take credit for any of it. <laughs> I say, thank you, God. For my salvation. Thank you for calling me to yourself. Thank you for opening my eyes to this grace that I did not deserve. In fact, all of this is structured so that God might declare himself the one deserving of all the glory, even though we keep wanting to steal it. All of this is structured so that at the end of the day, you say, all I brought to this equation, all I brought to this relationship was my sin. And God took me in and eradicated what I brought to the relationship. <laughs> in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve wanted to be wiser than God. They wanted to be God. And that is humanity's chief sin. We want to be like God, worthy of praise and admonition. We want all the credit. We want to be seen as wise. But the message itself and how it saves us it leaves no grounds for this. Look at verse 19, and this will propel us into our final truth for this morning. Paul actually quotes a scripture here. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Truth number three, final truth for this morning is this. The word of the cross exalts the wisdom of God over the wisdom of man. Now, I wish we could just do a whole sermon on just this one verse that he quotes because, I mean, Paul's being expositional here. I mean, he's preaching a sermon. He says, he says here's my claim. The word of the cross is following those who are perishing, those who are being saved. It's the power of God. Now, for it is written, let me take you somewhere in the Old Testament that shows you this is how God works in the world. So where he takes them is Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. So if you want to turn there with me, feel free to. Isaiah chapter 29. It will also be on the screen. And I just want you to see how he's making this argument. Now this is God speaking to the people of Israel who were trusting all kinds of things other than God in the moment. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Now, because this people draw near with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. The discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. All, all, you, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us? Who knows us? 
You turn things upside down. And here's the, here's the prophet's declaration of their flawed perspective. He says, Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed save him who formed it? He has no understanding. So Paul reading the Isaiah scroll, says, you Corinthians are doing what the Israelites did in Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah is prophesizing, hey, judgment's coming, where this judgment is coming through the way that seems right to you. Israel had a problem regarding God here. They were treating him as the clay. In other words, what it means is Israel had this reoccurring problem of molding God into whatever image they wanted him to be, rather putting him in the place of God and letting him mold them. The Israelites did things their own way to their own demise. And we're given a tangible example of this in the very next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30. Threat is coming on Israel, and they need to decide what to do. Are they going to cry out to God who will save them, or are they going to look to some other means who would save them? And what they do, do you know who they go to for help in Isaiah chapter 30? I'll give you a hint. It's not God. I'll give you one guess on the nation that they go to to help them to save them. Egypt. What's problematic about that? (laughs) Whom did God save them from? Egypt, right? And so what happens is they say, hey, I've got a really smart idea. This makes a lot of sense according to man's wisdom. Egypt's really strong. If we just form an alliance with them to save us, then all of our problems will be fixed. And God says in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, Stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. Who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take a refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? Therefore... Shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation? You see what, what, what Paul sees? Paul sees a Corinthian people who have said the cross is not a good enough message to win Corinth. The cross is not a good enough message. We must rely on Corinthian values. We need strong Corinthian leaders who preach in this way and teach this way, and they teach wisdom that everybody's excited to teach about. We have another way to do this Christian thing. And Paul sees the Corinthian church and says, I've seen this before. (laughs) I've seen this in Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 30 when men claim to be wiser than God. And now back to 1 Corinthians, verse 20. You can see with all that in Paul's mind that he would then go to ask the questions, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, or the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. And when he's saying wisdom there, he's using the, the language of the Corinthian philosophers. They didn't know God through any of that. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What's the argument? Man's way fails. And one of the the points 
of the message of the cross being foolish to the world is that at the end of it all, you know whose wisdom will stand supreme above it all? God's. We will all stand before the throne of God and we will declare, verse 25, right? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. So my aim this morning is to preach Christ crucified. Not a popular message, not an easy message, not necessarily what people in the world want to hear, not necessarily what the world would say attracts people to church. But you're here this morning. You're in these seats this morning. Not because of our stage presence at St. Rose Community Church. Not because our music is concert quality. Not because our facilities are really that great. They're a pain in my tail, have been for years. Not because we are superior in our programming for kids and teenagers. No, St. Rose Community Church exists. We exist. We're in the room. Because God is pleased through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. People's lives have been changed forever in this place because we've kept one thing the center for the last eight years. Christ crucified. The power of God to save those who believe. I believe, along with Paul, that there are only two kinds of people in any room where the gospel is preached. There are those who are perishing, and there are those who are being saved through their faith in Jesus. So let me just close by speaking to the two categories of people, to the perishing. I just want to ask you, just consider the legitimacy of Christianity's claim. I mean, there's a reason Christianity did not die out in the first century when his people started to be stoned to death. There's a reason that Christianity didn't die out when they killed Jesus. And that reason is Jesus rose again, undeniably. And that his people were so convinced that this really is the plan of God for the world, that they were willing to give it all to proclaim that message to a dying world. And, and that didn't stop in the first century. We're, we're, we're a lot of miles re- removed and, and a lot of years removed, and the word of the cross, this moronic message, is being preached in this place this morning for a reason. And so if you're here this morning uh, let, me, let me say this. We Christians do not have a blind faith. We have a very grounded, historical, legitimate trust in a resurrected Savior, and we figure that he, the things that he has to say are more important than the things you have to say. And so we believe what the resurrected Savior has said and preserved for us. And so if you're here this morning and you don't have saving faith, I beg of you to beg of God that he might open your eyes to see what is true. I mean, just, just, I mean, if you don't know, just throw up a couple prayers for the next few moments and beg God, if he's real, to open your eyes to what I'm talking about. Plead with him to effectively call you to himself. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. 
And this Lord's Supper is a symbol for Christians to remind themselves of the primary message. It's a visual, symbolic representation that reminds us, is the th- very thing that Jesus did with the disciples before he went to the cross. He said, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, keep this message the central part. And what we do is we drink the cup and we remind ourselves of the blood that he shed for us and we break the bread and we remind ourselves of the body that was broken for us. And as we all take it together, we, we remind ourselves it's this message that actually unites everybody in the room. And so we're about to partake in that together as a church. And let me just ask you, only partake of that if you're in category number two. That is, those who are being saved. This is, the Lord's Supper is like a line in the sand. It forces you in a moment to decide, am I really among those who are being saved, or am I among those who are perishing? Because the Bible says, do not drink in an unworthy manner, lest you bring judgment on yourself. It is a line in the sand moment where you say, am I with these people, or am I not with these people? And so we're going to go into a time um, where we reflect on the power of God to save our own lives, where we reflect on the power of God to save the lives of those who we care about. And so Christian, to the Christian in the room, to those who are being saved, let me just say this. What's the application of this message this morning? I mean, number one, praise the Lord, right? Just just be glad in Jesus. Number two, be confident. This message was powerful enough to save you, right? And if you're discouraged or broken because of the people in your life who do not know Jesus, Be confident that the message of the cross is powerful enough to save them, that you're not the one who calls. There's a God in heaven who calls those to himself that you must throw yourself down at his feet and trust him. So be encouraged. This message of the cross is not lacking power. Charles Spurgeon says that preachers spend all this time defending uh, the word when really they should just let it out of its cage like a lion to do what it does. Let the message of the gospel through the power of God do its work in your life. Let's reflect on that message together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and uh, as our um, ushers with the Lord's Supper materials come forward and prepare to start handing that out, um, let me say a word of prayer for us. Lord, uh, over the next 15 minutes, through just the Lord's Supper and the singing of songs, Lord, we pray Help us to remember the message of the cross. The power of God to save those who believe. Father, we pray, help us to remember, to reflect, to remember that all we brought into this relationship was our own sin, and it's Jesus who did away with all of that, that we might have a relationship with you forever. Help us to remember it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.